Open your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> Two years ago, we had a false start on Luke. During the Advent season, we went through a pretty good bit of the first two chapters up through the Christmas story, but then we weren't finished with the other study we were doing, and we returned to that, and it went on for many weeks, and uh, Luke never got started again. So today we'll begin again, and it's my intention this time uh, to keep going and to go through the whole book of Luke, though I suspect that will take us some considerable amount of time. Since we... Uh, Consider these first uh, few uh, uh, passages together. This may sound um, like review to us, but it seems better than just starting in uh, chapter 3 or the end of chapter 2. After all, it is Advent, and we're inclined to turn our hearts toward the celebration of Jesus coming into the world. So um, we turn our attention to the coming of Jesus here. We've undoubtedly heard the Christmas story many times. You know how it begins. Uh, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Except that that's not really the beginning of the Christmas story. That's chapter 2. Uh, what about chapter 1? That's where we are so this morning. We don't hear so much about that. But uh, for these uh, remaining three Sundays before Christmas, I'd like for us to look at this first chapter of Luke, which is the real beginning of the Christmas story. So let me read. This morning we hope to get all the way down through verse 25. You have an introduction in the first four verses, and then this first account in verses 5 to 25. A fairly lengthy uh, reading, so follow along as I read. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah answered the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, 
and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In, those, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. There will end our reading of God's word. I think there are two uh, truths that we need to grasp this morning about this, in, in addition to just the knowledge of the story that we read. Two overarching truths which the story suggests to us. And the first is this, that Luke proclaims good news to everyone. Luke proclaims good news to everyone. When you start reading a book, I don't know if you bother reading the preface and the introduction. I used to just ignore those parts of the book, getting down to the meat of the thing and what I was really interested in. But I've learned that the introductory material is helpful. It, uh, there we learn why the author wrote. There we learn what his perspective is, where he's coming from, uh, what he hopes to accomplish in the book, perhaps. In the same way, we ought not just rush past the introduction to the book of Luke in these first four verses. There we learn the point of the whole book. And as we examine this introduction and then think about the book as a whole, not just the, 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 the separate accounts, we can't help but understand this first great truth, that Luke proclaims good news to everybody. Let me explain so we can see uh, Luke's uh, intention as it's reflected in a lot of different ways here. First of all, we see his intention in his literary style of his writing. New Testament scholars have long been impressed with the formal classical Greek rhetoric of verses 1 to 4. He begins this gospel like medical writers and historians of his, of his time began their works. Luke is, for Luke is writing an official historical account, not just some theological speculation of his own. Luke is writing for the whole world to hear officially the good news that he has to report. But then interestingly, in the body of the work of this Gospel of Luke, Luke changes from that classical Greek rhetoric style to the common Greek of the marketplace, to the common Hebrew and Aramaic that people spoke in Jesus' time in Israel. For he's not writing some lofty intellectual tome, but he's writing as a reporter on the street telling what's happening. Luke is proclaiming good news to everyone. We also see Luke's intention in, in his stated purpose for writing that's recorded in these first verses. Think of the situation. Something has happened in the world uh, centered on this man, Jesus of Nazareth. There are bits and pieces of information everywhere. Some of them are undoubtedly true. Some of them seem rather far-fetched. Some seem utterly absurd. So what's a person to believe? Especially, what's a serious official like Theophilus to believe? Well, Luke sets out to write a researched, accurate, and full account about this Jesus. He thoroughly investigates the evidence. 
That came naturally to him. He was a doctor. He interviewed eyewitnesses, though he did not claim to be an eyewitness himself. He was writing as, as an historian. Then Luke set out to write an orderly, accurate, historical account, as he says himself here in these verses, so that you may know the certainty or infallibility of the things you have been told. Folks, in our country, we have a free press, and we value a free press for just this reason. Fantastic rumors fly around in little circles of our society. We see them flying around the internet all the time. Crazy things. And, 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 and what, what's really true? We want so much for reporters to be investigating and find out what's really going on and telling us the straight truth, not just somebody's spin on it. That's what Luke did. Something very few people did in his day. Something very few people do in our day, especially in other lands or many lands. But as a result, Luke has good news for everyone, and he wants to make sure we understand it correctly. We especially see Luke's intention, not just in the introductory things of the book, but as we look at the book as a whole for just a second. Luke's perspective, and Luke's gospel has a universal perspective that is kind of unique to him. Uh, By this, I do not mean that Luke teaches here that all people everywhere will be saved. He certainly does not teach that. That's not true. But Luke is taken by the fact that, as we read in the Advent readings this morning, there is a universality previously unknown. Jesus is not just coming as the Savior of the Jews, but as the Savior of the world. And so Luke reports Things like the angel declared, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all people. And and he writes the genealogy of Jesus, tracing it back not just to Abraham, the father of Israel, but all the way back to Adam, the father of all. And he tells about the Samaritans on several occasions. And Gentiles are mentioned in Simeon's song, for example. And Luke reports on Jesus' statement about non-Israelites like the widow of Zarephath and Naaman and the Syrophoenician woman and the Roman centurion. Luke is concerned that we understand the universal perspective that the gospel is good news for everybody. But it's not just um, everybody in kind of a generic sense. Luke is also concerned for the very personal nature of the gospel. Leon Morris writes, Luke did not think of the divine purpose as appearing only in in great movements of nations and peoples. It operated in the lives of humble men and women For even the little people matter to God. And that's what we find in the book of Luke, in this gospel. Uh, We find that women are prominent in this account of Luke. Mary and Elizabeth and Anna and Martha and Mary the sisters and Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and the widow of Nain and the sinful woman that anointed Jesus' feet. The little old bent woman, the woman who gave all that she had in the temple. The daughters of Jerusalem who lamented as Jesus went to the cross. And the women in the parables of the lost coin and the unjust judge. Women are prominent. And we find also that children have a special prominence in this gospel according to Luke. He records the infancy stories of John and of Jesus. Special information is given concerning the, the children in Jesus' life. The children who are brought to Jesus are specifically said to be infants. Jairus' daughter is portrayed as Jairus' only daughter, and the widow of Nain is bearing her only son. There's an emphasis on the children. 
And in Luke's gospel, the outcasts are ministered to. Zacchaeus and Levi and the sinful woman anointing Jesus' feet and the prodigal son. The poor receive special attention. The wealthy, special warning. Luke's investigation of the life of Jesus causes him to proclaim that the gospel is good news for everybody. From the highest levels to the lowest level, the greatest width, Jew and Gentile alike, from officialdom to common street language, the gospel is good news to everybody. Dear people, this Advent season, I tell you, we need more of Luke's perspective. I'm reformed and proud of being reformed. But I must say that in our concern for pure reform doctrine, and in our stand against Christ-denying inclusionism, that's a, the spirit of our day, we are sometimes in danger of having no good news for anybody. We can become so heavy and so negative that we miss the point that Luke wants to emphasize that the gospel is good news to the world. Well, that's just about the introduction. Let's move on to this first account about Zechariah the priest, which brings us to our second point, and that's this, that God keeps his promises. We'll see that throughout the book, but we see it especially here. God keeps his promises. You know, few things are as cheap these days as promises. Almost none of us really believe the promises we hear all the time. We're in in, in an election season. We hear promises made every day by politicians. Does anybody believe those things? We hear advertisers all the time. We see them on television. We see them in every magazine, newspaper we read. Does anybody believe all the advertisers' promises? Indeed, indeed, these days we have reason to disbelieve promises that are made in wedding vows, promises that are made taking oaths to public office. Like I said, few things are as cheap as promises these days. But this text makes a point of the fact that God keeps his promises. Well, sometimes it doesn't look like he will. The days described in her text were some of the darkest of days. In verse 5, Luke tells us simply that Herod was the king of Judah. There are several Herods. This is what, the one called Herod the Great. Those living back then would have understood what that meant, that Herod was king of Judea. But since you were not there and I was not there, let me explain a little bit about what that meant. Herod was an Edomian. That means he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. That's interesting, isn't it? God said that the children, the descendants of Judah, uh, of of Jacob, would rule the descendants of Esau. But here's a descendant of Esau ruling the descendants of Jacob. He ruled from 37 to 4 B.C. And he had actually been given the title king over Judea. During that reign, he rebuilt the Jewish temple and He's known for that, but what we don't know so much is that he was an increasingly ruthless man. He was the Saddam Hussein of his day. He had ten marriages. He killed at least one of his wives. He had many sons. He killed several of them who would have been his descendants, who might have inherited his throne, uh, because he didn't want them inheriting his throne, so he killed his own son. This was the Herod who would have every baby in uh, Bethlehem killed in an attempt to kill this one baby, Jesus. This was a ruthless man in those days of great oppression and great trouble. It was hard not to think 
that perhaps God had forgotten his people. Oh, but God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. In fact, here we see God keeping his promises using exactly the means that he had established. In our text, we find God working through a faithful priest named Zechariah and his godly wife named Elizabeth. They were both descendants of Aaron, both from priestly families. Verse 6 tells us they were upright and pious in their faithful practice of the faith, though they lived with the disappointment of never having had any children. Zechariah was uh, from the priestly division of Abijah. There were 24 divisions of priests established by King David centuries earlier, and those divisions took turns serving in the temple. So in our story, it was Zechariah's turn, uh, and he had been chosen by lot to burn incense in the holy place. This was a rare privilege. Uh, 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 A priest would only probably have this privilege one time in his whole life. So when everything was in order and ready for the sacrifice of incense, all the other priests would leave the holy place and Zechariah was left all alone in the holy place. Outside the people watched and, and uh, prayed, waiting for the smoke to ascend as their prayers ascended to heaven. That's the context of this story. That's the setting in which God began to remember his promises. Before we move on, just a, a comment. You know, in these dark days of Herod, where God seemed to be nowhere in sight, do you wonder how Zechariah kept plodding along, kept working in the temple, though God seemed to have forgotten Israel? He seemed to have forgotten Zechariah and his wife. It's hard to be faithful when we don't see anything happening, isn't it? It's hard to keep serving and to keep praying, and to keep showing up, and to keep giving yourself. You see other people walk away, and you feel like quitting yourself. But this morning, I want you to see that when the time came for God to keep his ancient promises to Israel, he started with this faithful old priest named Zechariah, who was still keeping covenant with the Lord all these many decades later. In spite of everything, in spite of the harsh king, in spite of his personal disappointment, in spite of the long delays in God's promise, God started with this old priest named Zechariah, a name that means, interestingly, God remembers. You see, when God keeps his promise, he most often uses the very means that he established. Well, one of those ancient promises was God's promise to send a forerunner to precede the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah had predicted the coming of such a one who would cry out in the wilderness. Later, the prophet Malachi had prophesied that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord. In fact, that promise by Malachi was the last word of any prophet for 400 years prior to this. Needless to say, that promise, too, looked rather bleak in Zechariah's day. But God will keep his promise. Sometimes in ways we never imagined, though. Well, that's what happened in the temple that day. Zacharias is uh, there. Zechariah is there, and he's faithfully doing his uh, priestly duties. He's probably somewhat in awe of this position that he finds himself in, that he's never done quite before, and he will probably never do again. 
And uh, as he's busy offering the incense and all, he suddenly realizes he's no longer alone in the holy place. There standing at the right side of the temple of incense was an angel. This is not a vision. This is not a hallucination. This is somebody standing in a specific place. Not surprisingly, Zechariah was startled and afraid. What's going on? What does this, what does this mean? Had he, had he done something wrong? What's happening? But the angel calmed his fears and declared that his prayers had been heard. Now many people say, well, that's his prayer to have a child. I doubt that Zechariah had prayed for that for a lot of years, actually. I suspect the angel was referring to his prayer that he was offering for the salvation of Israel. The liturgical prayers offered every morning and every evening in the temple. We don't know exactly what Zechariah was praying, but we do know something of the kind of prayers that are still offered in this day in Jewish circles. Here's one. May the seed of David, thy servant, flourish speedily. May you exult in your salvation, for in your salvation do we hope all the day Blessed are you, Lord, who bring forth the horn of our salvation. Zechariah's probably praying something like that. And the angel said, God heard your prayer, Zechariah. Oh, but God's answer to Zechariah's prayer for the salvation of Israel was way beyond Zechariah's wildest imagination. The angel went on to inform him that he and Elizabeth were going to have a son. And he should name him John, which means God is gracious for And from birth he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He would be the fulfillment of that promise made through Isaiah and made through Malachi. One who would come with the power and spirit of Elijah. One who would be the messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah to come. God keeps his promises. Though sometimes his plans are beyond what we might have ever dreamed. Well here the story takes a rather human turn. Turn. Faithful old Zechariah, who had served the Lord against all odds for decades and decades, suddenly had trouble believing what he was hearing. In response to the angel's promise, Zechariah said, Look, I'm an old man. Now, the older I get, the more I understand the depth of that simple statement. When we're young, we dare to dream. When we're old, we learn things aren't that simple. We easily become suspicious of anything that's out of the ordinary. When we're young, we believe anything can happen. When we're old, we just know better. Plus, when we're young, we can make things happen. God wants my wife pregnant? Well, we can work on that. Zachariah was old and he said, God, this isn't gonna happen. So with his faith faltering, Zachariah said to the angel, I'm an old man. How can this be? I'm an old man. Oh, but I love this part. The angel responded, well, I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. I suggest you ought not get in an argument with the Lord about what's possible and not possible. God was not amused. In fact, the angel went on to pronounce a curse. On Zechariah, a sign of God's chastening. He would be unable to speak, perhaps unable to hear as well, we don't know, until this son was born. For Zechariah, for all his faithfulness, did not believe the promise God had given him when the time came. You see, God will keep his promises, even if his ways are not what we expected or even considered possible. 
Well, meanwhile, outside the temple, the people are waiting. And it's gotten to be a long time. And what's going on in there? It's out of the routine here. Things aren't right. Um, throughout the Old Testament, there was a constant concern that priests standing in the presence of God in the sanctuary might actually be in danger given God's consuming holiness. I guess we've long since gotten over that fear, haven't we? Who, who worries about God's consuming holiness? I mean, we waltz into God's presence and make our demands and bring our grocery list, never give it a thought. Be careful. God's still holy. Well, when Zechariah finally comes out, the people are even more confused. confused. Something happened in there. This is frightening. He saw something. He saw a vision. He, he couldn't speak. He couldn't explain to them what happened. He couldn't pronounce the priestly benediction. What's going on, they wondered. Well, they only had a little while to wait before they would see God was about to keep his ancient promises to send a messenger to announce Messiah's coming, to send a Messiah to bring salvation to Israel. Little did they know they had seen the beginning of something that would change the whole world. Dear people, we don't expect to see angels telling us that a Messiah is coming. He has already come. But we ought to expect God to be working, doing the things he promised. We ought to expect him to use the means that he's given us, the means he's established. So we need to be busy about those things, busy keeping the faith in all of its fullness, not just as a mindless routine, but in expectation that God will do what he said with these things. But we also ought to understand God is not limited by our expectation. He will save people we never dreamed of. And he will use ways we never thought possible. He will move all history to work out his promised plan for the world, even using even the wickedness of people to work out his plan. The fact that God's promises seem impossible, that means nothing. For God will keep his promises. When we get to the end of the story, there's a sense really nothing's changed. Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, finish their duty in the temple. They go back to their home out in the hill country. The people go on about their business. Some other priest is chosen to serve the next day. And life goes on. Oh, but in another way, everything has changed. Zechariah, now speechless, ponders the impossible things he saw and heard. And before long, Elizabeth perceives there's life growing in her womb. And the drama has begun to unfold, which will result in salvation coming to the earth. Oh, they don't understand it all yet. They don't know what it's going to look like. But now they wait in faith. And so do we. Amen. Let's pray.